I uh, <clears throat> was sharing with some friends about this text, and they said uh, I got sort of these different responses. They kind of ran the gamut. So one person asked me, Do, does everybody at Apostles believe in election? And how will people react to this sermon? And, you know, Emily and I wrestled with this whole passage all week together. And it is true that this passage does elicit a response that is uh, unique. And it is that doctrine of election and predestination that tends to send people in opposite directions. Many theologians have commented that this is one of the most challenging passages in all of the book of Romans and possibly one of the most challenging passages in the entire scripture. And yet this passage ought to be the most humbling and comforting passage for the children of God. See, I wonder if the issue we have with Romans 9 is that this description of God as as sovereign, as as a sovereign king, runs counter to what we want God to be like. We want to come to God on our own terms. We want to be the one who makes the final call. We don't want someone exerting their sovereign will over us or over ours. Emily and I have been watching a Netflix series called The Crown. It chronicles the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. I can see some of you smiling and nodding. You're keeping up with it as well. And there's this very tense scene between the queen and Prince Philip. They're having a, uh, a row, as the British might say, over whether or not Prince Philip should kneel at her coronation. And Philip asks her, are you my wife or my queen? And she says, I'm both. I want to be married to my wife, Philip says. I am both. And a strong man would be able to kneel. He refuses once more. Your wife is not asking you to, but my queen commands me? Yes. I beg you, make an exception for me, he says. No. The queen's sovereign position requires he kneel. Her divine right requires that her subjects recognize her sovereign position. Full allegiance even to her husband. We're not talking about an earthly kingdom, are we? We're talking about the king of the universe who sovereignly created Adam and Eve, who chose to lavish his love on Israel, not because they were strong and numerous, as it says in Deuteronomy 7, who sovereignly led his people out of slavery more than once, who revealed mystery after mystery concerning himself to his beloved children, who sent his son, his only son, to die for them and for us. That king, that king is fully sovereign and fully in control of all things. And it is because he is sovereign, just, and compassionate that he acts to both save and sustain his children. I'm going to say that again. It is because God is sovereign, just, and compassionate that he acts to both save and sustain his children. 
So what does Romans teach us about the Lord's sovereignty and our relationship to him? And there are four things I want to look at. Uh, The first, Romans 9 should lead us or teach us to compassion, humility, and anguish. Uh, Secondly, that salvation is God's business. And third, that God is the boss. And fourthly, that it is indeed all about faith. So I start with point one, that these verses one through five should ultimately lead us to a foundation of compassion and humility and anguish towards the lost. And here Paul talks of having great sorrow and anguish over the fact that his fellow Jews have missed the Savior. He's in such anguish over their, react, their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah that he says these incredible verses in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. This is not a flippant comment. This is not just an emotional ploy. Paul is so exercised that these people who have this rich ancestry have missed the boat. Martin Luther, the German reformer, he found these words beyond comprehension. He said, it seems incredible that a man would desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. Paul, who, after his conversion, had been severely mistreated by Jewish leaders, he displays what can only be described as a supernatural desire to see them come to Christ. Recently, one of our cameramen, a gentleman who's been traveling the world for me for the last with with me for the last 17 years, he was doing a story on a, a Syrian convert, a woman who had come out of Islam and was a refugee in nearby Lebanon, and she picks up the scripture and she begins to read the scripture and she comes to this part in the gospel of John chapter 1 verse 11 that says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And I want you to watch what happens after she reads that. This is the scripture that I love. I'd like to read it to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right Jesus, I thank you that I accepted you. God, don't leave me. I need you so much. My husband needs you, my family, my kids, my mom, my parents and siblings. Lord, intervene in their lives. I don't want them to perish. Don't let them die without knowing you. Without you, there's nothing we can do. All of them are far away from you, Jesus. We have nobody to lead them, to guide them, except you, Lord. 
Reveal yourself to them, Jesus. Bring them to you without letting them suffer. Please don't let them face problems and hardships as I faced. Be glorified in their lives according to your goodness, kindness, and greatness. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, but born of God. His own did not receive him. It sounds a, a contradiction in terms. How is it that his own did not receive him? And we're going to try to answer that. I'm going to attempt to answer that this morning. This should be our attitude towards the loss. Paul is bent in humility and with compassion, and he's anguished over the lost. Our midweek prayer gathering should be packed with members of this church, earnestly seeking the Lord to intervene on behalf of wayward children, lost siblings, lost parents, Romans 9 should not lead us to pride. It should not lead us to a haughty spirit, but to a face to the ground humility that God is the only one who can save. Romans 9 should lead us to humility for our unworthiness in experiencing God's grace. And this leads me to my second point, which is that salvation is God's business. Verses 6 through 13. I have this friend in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, and he discovered this Lebanese restaurant in Ocean Springs, and he thought he was going to witness to the owner. He kept going back to the restaurant. He thought he was going to witness to the owner, and he asked the owner, he said, so you're a Muslim? And he said, no, 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 I'm a Christian. And my friend, not knowing that Christians used to be the majority in Lebanon, had asked him, you know, how did you become a Christian? You know, he didn't know. And the restaurant owner said, well, I became a Christian 2,000 years ago. (laughs) Well, you see, to this Lebanese man, you are born a Christian or you are born a Muslim. And we see this in the Middle East. Many cultural Christians exist and they identify as a Christian through birth, maybe through their family or their geography, but their spiritual eyes have not been opened. They have not come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus. We see this in the West, in America, right? People will identify with a denomination. They may tick the the Gallup poll box marked Christian. But they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. To them, religion is like their university alma mater. Paul is saying here in verses 6 through 13 that just because someone says they're a Jew does not mean they are of the promise. The second half of verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. I shared in a a previous message that there is the church visible and there is the church invisible. Not everyone who comes to church who even receives membership or takes communion regularly is a member of the body of Christ. It requires a circumcision of heart. And that, that only God can do. Salvation is God's business. 
Salvation is God's business, meaning he is the one that draws. He is the one that opens eyes and gives ears to the truth. Paul gives examples of how this promise is supernatural and not biological. The first being Abraham's fathering Isaac and Ishmael. One is the child of promise, the other is not. But just in case you think, well, they had two different mothers. Paul uses Jacob and Esau as an example. Same mother and father, twins. One is the child of promise and the other is not. This is the point. God's promise is given sovereignly, not biologically. If you could inherit salvation biologically, then it would be through some sort of effort of our own. Look at verses 11 and 12. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. There is that word, election. It, it elicits a strong reaction. My prayer this whole week has been that we would come to understand the meaning of that word and that we would give up on our notions of, of, of fairness or what we want God to be like. that we would come to the realization that no one deserves salvation. No one. We all deserve hell. The fact that God saves anyone is absolutely miraculous and humbling. Before I get on to the third point, a word about the word hate in verse 13. This is not the hate that we understand as humans. It literally means that God did not bestow favor on Esau. I heard Brian Chappell one time said that when he's at a wrestling match for his son, he's cheering on his son. That does not mean that he... Uh, desires ill will for the other child, but that he wants to see his son succeed. That example stuck with me. Three, God is the boss. The kids learn this phrase in the children's ministry upstairs at an early age, and in our van on the way home, they'll say it over and over and over again. God is the boss. It's a great truth to learn at an early age. And as we get older, we sort of have to flesh that out a little bit. What does that mean, God is the boss? He is sovereign. Sovereign over everything? Yep. Sovereign over evil? Yes. Note that I did not say that God authors evil. You see, the opposite is found in Islam. You may have heard me reference this phrase in a previous sermon, but in the Arab world, there's an Arabic word, inshallah. It literally means God willing or if God wills. The phrase is used a lot. I'll be traveling with a cousin or a friend or something, and I'll say, is this airline safe? And they say, oh, yes, inshallah. doesn't give me comfort. You see, it sounds pious, it sounds religious, it sounds like a not my will be done, but yours be done. 
right? But in fact, it leads to fatalism. Why? Because Allah is not a personal God. He is capricious. He is fickle. There's a verse in the Quran that says, Then Allah misleads whom he wills, and he guides whom he wills. There are two names of the 99 names of Islam. He is both a leader and a misleader. Al-Hadi, the guide, and Al-Mudil, the misguider. The one who misleads, who sends people astray. So when a Muslim says, Insha'Allah, they don't know whether they are getting good Allah or bad Allah that day. Inshallah could be translated more accurately as, who knows? This is not Yahweh. This is Satan. Yahweh, the Lord, is not a misleader. He is not a misguider. He is not the author of evil. But because he is sovereign, he overrules evil for his good purposes. And this should bring us great comfort. So when we read in verse 17 and 18, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. We must understand that God is not ultimately thrown off course by wicked men. Neither does he create or instigate or mislead people into wickedness. But rather, God brings good out of evil, overruling the evil devices of men to bring about his own purposes. We're headed into Easter, Easter week, where we look at all the different passages related to our Lord's final week here on earth. And one of the aspects that we will look back on is Jesus' betrayal at the hands of Judas Iscariot. Or as my four-year-old calls him, Judith. (laughs) Judas was not forced. He did exactly what he wanted to do. His greed, his lust for power motivated him to sell our Lord out for 30 pieces of silver. But in that act of wickedness, Judas, unbeknownst to him, gave us the greatest gift of all. An evil act sovereignly overruled by God and used to bring about salvation for you and me through the cross. Now, we don't thank Judas for that, but we rest in knowing that God is ultimately in control. There is a huge distinction between Allah that purposely misleads and people uh, who misleads people and Yahweh who hardens already hard hearts. Already hard hearts. Think back to Romans 1. Earlier in this series, Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. God essentially says, If you persist in sin, I will give you what you so desire. I will turn you over to it. This is a very sobering phrase. This is a very sobering thought. The the problem we have sometimes when we read this section of Romans 9 is that we make the mistake 
that God's eternal decrees were made in light of an innocent human race. But the, the Lord, knowing that man would fall, the Lord, knowing that man would fall, made his decrees. It's not popular in this day, right? The, the concept of the fall, the idea that everyone born of a woman is deserving of hell, that we are born enemies of God. The fact that anyone is saved and brought into a right relationship should be so fantastical and beyond comprehension. Do not get your theology from country singer Luke Bryan who sings, I believe most people are good. We should get it from the Apostle Paul who says in Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Only God can raise dead people. Only God can bring people who are his enemies to become his friends, his children, his beloved. And that key ingredient, that tool that the Lord uses to bring people to inherit his righteousness is faith. And that's my fourth point is it is indeed all about faith. Verses 30 through 33 Paul ends here by drilling down on what is the key distinction of how righteousness is obtained, and it is through faith. Maybe you recall during the, the Clinton administration, there was a, 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 an advisor named John, James Carville. He had come up with a phrase, an internal, it was meant to be an internal phrase in the White House, and it was, it is the economy, stupid. It was, it was a phrase designed to refocus the administration and refocus them to what mattered to the voters, which was the economy. It was all about the economy. Paul seems to end in this section by refocusing our attention on what matters most. And it is faith in Christ, not in our works. Not in our family history. Not in our denomination. Not in our parents' faith. He is addressing the issue that someone might raise. How is it that Israel, who strives and works so hard to obtain God's favor, misses it? How is it that his own did not receive him? And how is it that someone from the outside gets in? Paul quotes from Isaiah, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You see, Christ came as a a rock, a savior. But many Jews missed it. They stumbled over this rock because ultimately they wanted to rely on their own merit. The doctrine of faith alone is a violent assault on human pride. We must come to the point of realizing that it is a sovereign God alone who opens spiritual eyes, who acts out of compassion to save people who cannot save themselves. And he he imparts faith, a sustaining faith, to a faithless heart. Uh, Last week, Emily and I were driving down to the beach, and we received news that a friend of ours out of state had been diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. 
the diagnosis and prognosis, it, it was uh, quite grim. So I called his mother. I wanted to let her know that I had heard and we were praying for him. And she said, Joshua, the Lord is omniscient, which means he knew this cancer was coming. But he's not just omniscient, he's omnipotent, which meant he can stop this cancer. Josh, God is sovereign, which means he has a purpose in all of this. Now, that doesn't stop me from praying, let this cup pass from me. Because if it's good enough for Jesus, it's a good enough prayer for me. But we are seeing glimpses of his purpose in that people are getting saved and coming to Christ through Sam's illness. God's sovereignty is most challenged and resisted when tragedy strikes. It is only through the eyes of faith that we can rest in the fact that God is working all things out for his purposes, for his children all the time, even when we may not see the ends right now. Let me ask you a question. Is God aloof to you? Is your understanding of God the same as how the Muslims view him? One day you get angry God. The next day you get happy God. I want to say to you that God's desire is 2 Peter 3, 9, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. If that's you, let's pray now. Pray and join me in prayer. Let's ask for that faith, that faith that brings reconciliation to him, that faith that brings assurance in a sovereign king who is for us and not against us. Let's pray.